This morning I want to share with you a thought on the day of Memorial Day, and I want to end by talking about the one that we really came to honor, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. In our calendar every year as a nation, we have three holidays, and this generation doesn't always get them confused, but some in our younger ranks do, and it's not their fault. They just are not always taught what each of those days represent. We have this day called Memorial Day, and it's just indeed to remember those who literally died in combat or died during a conflict wearing the uniform of this country. That's why it's called a memorial. You memorialize those who died in battle. July the 4th, in just a few days, we'll gather for a birthday celebration. When the United States of America became, or declared at least its independence from Great Britain, it would be a while before we gained it, but we declared it in 1776, and we still remember that birthday just as you remember your birthday. And then in the fall, 11-11-11, it was the 11th month, the 11th day, at the 11th hour, that the treaty was signed in World War I. It was originally called Armistice Day, and then it came to be the day we honor all veterans, anybody who ever wore the uniform. Sometimes we confuse Veterans Day and Memorial Day and think, well, today's the day we recognize everybody who served. Well, we're grateful to all who served, but your recognition isn't for a few months. We're grateful for this nation, and you'll see red, white, and blue because we celebrate the nation on any of these holidays, but the real birthday of America is in July. Today, we take a moment to remember those who, with their own blood, paid with the ultimate sacrifice that they could give, and that is their life, that liberty could continue. There have been many great memorial moments in history, and some of you have been to the great monuments, some to the World War II memorial in, in, in our uh, nation's capital, some to the Korean. If you've been to the capital, you went to the Korean memorial, Vietnam Wall. I mean, you've been to those memorials. Some have flown to Pearl Harbor and seen that massive Arizona memorial buried still beneath the sea just a few feet. And we, when you stand on that memorial, you realize it was right here right here where those torpedoes and bombs fell December the 7th, 1941. And you've stood there, and it kind of gives you a, 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 almost a religious experience as you feel the, the, the hair on the back of your neck stand up a bit, and you're, you get a little choked up, thinking that down there still men buried that were on that ship on that morning. Perhaps the greatest Memorial Day speech ever made was not at Memorial Day. It had not been invented yet, not been created yet. It was in a place called Gettysburg, and that was a horrible battle. If you remember your history, in three days, July 1st to July the 3rd, 1863, 40,000 men were either killed or wounded. 10,000 were missing in action. 40,000. If we had a battle today and came the news this afternoon, you said 40,000 of our troops have died, you'd say, what in the world? Uh, have been died, were killed or wounded, you'd say, what in the world? But on that day, on both sides, Union and Confederate, the total number of casualties was 40,000. That happened in July. By November, they had formed a, a cemetery to bury the Union dead. Now, remember, Confederates were traitors, so they weren't worried about them being buried with a marker. Confederate Southern boys were put in a mass grave or left just in a shallow grave. So why'd they bury them at all? Well, because disease. Dead bodies that lie out for very long attract all kinds of things that create diseases. And so burial is not always for honor, it's for preservation of life. And, and on that day, November the 19th, 1863, two men were asked to come speak to dedicate the Gettysburg Cemetery. Some of you have been there, and if so, you've not soon forgotten that experience. Two men were invited. One was the name Abraham Lincoln, the other one a man named Everett e <laughs> 
Edward Everett, easy for me to say. He, Ever, Everett was one of the noted orators of, the genera- of that era. He was one of the best speakers and, and, and uh, dramatic uh, oratorial po- folks in all, in all the land. And so when they asked him, it's like inviting the best of the best to really be there to dedicate through his, through his illustrious speech. He spoke for two hours. <laughs> I don't think you would stay for two hours. I'm not sure, but I've seen you leave sooner. Nobody remembers what he said because he recounted all the battle, all the preloaded battle and all the battles and all that's happened. For two hours, they relived the war. And by then, they were tired, felt like veterans themselves. And then stood up this old long, lanky country boy, nicknamed the Rail Splitter. Sometimes we see the news today and think, boy, Mr. Trump must be doing everything wrong because there's no good news. That was Lincoln. In case you think that all presidents have been loved, let me tell you what his hometown paper wrote of Honest Abe. This was his hometown paper. These were his friends. The illustrious Honest Old Abe has continued during the last week to make a fool of himself and to mortify and shame the intelligent people of this great nation his speeches have demonstrated the fact that although originally a Herculean rail splitter and more lately a whimsical storyteller and side splitter, he's no more capable of becoming a statesman, nay, even a moderate one, than a, than a braying ass can become a noble lion. People now marvel how it came to pass that Mr. Lincoln should have been selected as the representative man of any party. His weak, wishy-washy, namby-pamby efforts, imbecile in matter, disgusting in manner, have made us the laughing stock of the whole world. The European powers will despise us because we have no better material out of which to make a president. Truth is, Lincoln is, the only, is only a moderate lawyer and in the larger cities of the Union could pass for no more than a facetious pettifogger, whatever that is. Take him from his vocation and he loses even these small characteristics and indulges in simple twaddle, which would disgrace a well-bred schoolboy. Do you feel the love? He had been elected President of the United States in 1860. Are you ready for this? By 39.8% of the vote. There were four candidates running, not two, and by the time they split up the votes, Lincoln got 39.8%. Now then they elected you in November, but to give you time to get to the, to the Capitol and all your people to the Capitol, they, didn't, or they did not inaugurate you till March. Between November and March, seven states, South Carolina being the first, between November and March, seven states had left the Union. Those who had voted for Lincoln in November by February... By February, only 25%, 1 million, the 4.7 million voted for him, said I'd vote for him today if the election was again. 1 million out of 4.7 had already changed their mind in 90 days. <laughs> oh, my. Lincoln never admitted, n- never had led anything larger than a two-man law office. His first hope came in 1862 when he wrote the Emancipation Proclamation, but that was not even well received by a liberal press. An editorial in Columbus, Ohio's The Crisis said, We have no doubt that this Emancipation Proclamation seals the fate of the Union as it, as it was and the Constitution as it is. It's the ruin of our nation. That's what they were saying. The time is brief. This was 1863. 1862, the time is brief. 
when we shall have a dictator proclaimed. For the proclamation can never be carried out except under the iron rule of the worst kind of despotism. Well, in case you think our press is tough, who were they writing about? Benedict Arnold? No. A man named Abraham Lincoln because they said he's incapable of leading a nation. It's falling apart underneath his presidency. Two men stood that day at Gettysburg. The nation's most recognized orator, a man by the name of Edward Everett. And two hours, he, if you've not read that speech, get a big cup of coffee. He has more flowery adjectives. He'll say one part of a phrase and they have seven adjectival phrases. And then get to the rest of the sentence and have six more. It'll take you a while. You'll, you'll think sermons are a delight. <laughs> Whenever it finished, Abraham Lincoln, the crowd remembers and those writing about it, said he looked ashen. He was not himself, even on his best days. He, he was having a bad day, and they found out why. A week later, he came down with smallpox. He was in the earliest stages, having contracted smallpox, and nobody knew it. And he was sitting there for two hours while... Mr. Everett gave his speech. That takes a lot of a man right there. When he finished, when he finished, he stood on that ground where 40,000 men had either been killed or wounded, 10,000 were missing in action, and you know the phrase, the speech, but may I share it with you again because the last phrases is where we're going to focus. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now listen to this. We are engaged in a great civil war. You know we are again, except this time there are many factions. We're engaged in a great civil war testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and dedicated, can long endure. This part, he was wrong. The world will little know or long remember what we say here. <laughs> We're still remembering what he said there. The world will little know or long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what these men did here. For It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they fought here, uh, which those who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It's rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us. Yet from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to the cause for which they gave their last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. And that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom. And that government of the people, by the people, and for the people, shall not perish from the earth. The very conviction of a nation under God. A nation under God that is by the people, not by fiat command, not by hierarchical kings, and not by bloodline of royalty. A, a government of the people. A government by the people. And a government for the people that is the bedrock on which this day rests the rugged, unquenchable desire of men who yearn to be free. 
America's always been a diverse aggregation of folks. People have come from all over the world to be a part, to, to be a part of this nation, and we have one commonality. We yearn to be free. We are not from the same nations. We are not from the same tribes. Heaven knows we don't even speak the same languages. But we all understand one word, freedom. We don't know what we want, but those who come to our shores sure know what they don't want. The ones coming today say we want no more oppression. We don't want to live in a land of ethnic cleansing. We don't want to live in hopelessness and starvation. We want a better chance for our children. We're tired of rampant diseases that are killing us. That sounds like our forefathers. When they came, they said, we don't want tyranny. We've lived under that. We don't want taxation without representation, although I must say with it, it's not a whole lot better. Nor do they want to be a colony belonging to a nation that's a war across an ocean telling them in a new world what they had to do. Passion for liberty has always been the most pressing desire in the human heart. It is not American value. It is a human, God-given desire. There is a natural law. Even Mr. Jefferson, who was not a Christian, understood there is a natural law. And in the parts of men, there's a natural desire to live free. The slaves in Egypt couldn't wait for an exodus. The pilgrims wanted so much to come to a new world where they could live free. Our forefathers stood together, 56, signing the Declaration of Independence. And if we die, we die together. But we die yearning for freedom. When Martin Luther King was prominent in the 60s, he had one message to all African Americans. We want free and equal opportunities for all. When East Berlin was standing and people were in the early days willing to try to get across the wall only to be shot in the back, the East Berliners longed to be free. I remember in Tiananmen Square when a young Chinese man, a young student, stood in front of a tank. And no matter which way that tank moved, the young man would move as if to say, I will not bend, I will not break, I will not budge. We want freedom for our people. I still want that. I think about the boat people who got in boats to float anywhere to get out of communism and its grasp from Asia. I think of those fleeing from Syria who are tired of dying and being killed and, and wondering, am I going to wake up tomorrow? What world do my children have if we continue to live here? And they put themselves on boats far overcrowded just trying to get somewhere to get away from tyranny. In our history, millions have come from all over the world. And as of this date, over one million people since our Revolutionary War, over one million people have died on these shores yearning to be free. started with eight, you remember? The Lexington Green, you remember that? When the farmers and merchants stood up against a troop of British soldiers and one of the, one of the farmers or merchants got a little anxious and pulled off around and suddenly the battle was on and as the men fled the field and the British regulars came after them, eight farmers and merchants lay dead. Those were the first to die on American soil for freedom. True freedom is not, true freedom is not a government policy. True freedom, freedom begins when one is set free by Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who said, John 8, 32, you'll know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Truth is not education. There are so many people who say, well, we just teach our kids the truth. Well, they need to know the truth, but truth of education is not what sets you free. Jesus said, I am the truth. And when you know him, you are free indeed. The Bible says in John 8, 
John 8, 36, Jesus said, if so, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 3, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty or freedom. Galatians 5, 13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge your flesh. Serve one another humbly in love. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Romans 8.1, the law of spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 1 Peter 2.16, live as a free people, but do not let your freedom be a cover-up for evil. That ought to be preached pretty regular. Freedoms were based on the spiritual fabric of men and women, stalwart and the tenets of the Christian faith. Though today seeks to rewrite our history and young people are not learning the history I learned. I don't know how old you are, but when I was in school in the 60s, we learned history. We learned about the godliness of our history, the uniqueness of our history because there were many, 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 many people who had a strong Christian conviction that made this country great. Do you know that Paul Revere's ride, by the way, was not to say the British were coming only one-third of, one of the colonies wanted to fight for their freedom. One-third were still deeply loyal to the British. For them to hear the British were coming, be amen. One-third were complacent, didn't want to do anything. And only one-third said, we cannot stand being under the yoke of bondage. When Paul Revere made his midnight ride, he didn't say the British are coming. He said the regulars are coming. The British soldier, the regulars are coming. Why was he riding through the streets? Well, to alert the Minutemen, but you know where he's going? He's on his way to tell Jonas Salk in Lexington, uh, Jonas Clark in Lexington, because two men were there, Sam Adams and John Hancock. And he wouldn't let those leaders of the nation who were in a prayer meeting with a preacher, boy, you wouldn't hear that. Did y'all learn that in school? He was on his way to tell a preacher that was praying for two statesmen of our nation. You better get ready, the war is on. They're landing and they're on their way to Lexington. We're a nation that was built on God. Our first citizens, our founders, and those that paid with their lives understood that fabric that made Americans strong and gave their last ounce of life to defend and preserve the liberty that's found in Christ. That's why when Mr. Bush tried to establish a free republic in the Middle East, it won't work. Not any religion will grant you freedom. Look around you. Not any faith will grant you freedom. And certainly no faith will, not, will grant you no freedom. What is the one distinctive of America? It is not our industry. It's not our technology. It's not all our advances. Our foundation is in God. And when we move from our foundation, we'll move from our freedom. And we're seeing it happen before our very eyes. Our freedom was strong as long as God is our focus because truly greater love has no man than this. Then they laid down his life for his friends. That was not the word of a patriot. That's the word of our master. I'm so grateful our national monuments are not painted. They're etched in stone, else they would have already been covered up by a new paint of a new era that's godless. Our national monuments declare the name of God freely. And are not ashamed to say, in God is our hope and strength. The national cemeteries are lined with crosses. When we start taking crosses out of memorials, what is going to happen to places like Arlington? The oath of office is taken on a Bible. As a man pledges, so help me God. The Pledge of Allegiance 
1954 added two words to set us apart from communism because while we were battling communism, Mr. Eisenhower, who had led the forces to defeat Nazis and Japanese tyranny, now was standing against communism, and he heard a Presbyterian preacher in a church where he was baptized in 1954. He heard a preacher say, the one thing that sets us apart from all the rest of the world is we are one nation truly under God. He said that ought to be in our pledge. Today we're saying that ought to get out of our pledge. What a difference a generation makes. Our patriotic songs talk about our godly past. One of those that we love to hear is, God bless America. What other nation sings a song like that? We remember the song, My Country, Tis of Thee. Do you remember the verse, Our fathers, God to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God, our King. What other nation sings a song like that? We love the song, God of our fathers, whose almighty hand. How about America the beautiful that says, God shed his grace on thee. We sang a moment ago the marvelous national anthem that folks want to change because it's hard to sing. Well, that's not the only reason. Have you ever wondered that there are four verses and we only sing one? Did you hear the last one we sang a minute ago? Praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation, then conquer we must when our cause it is just, and this is our motto in God is our trust. Would you say we're just slightly God-favored, or would you say we belong to the Almighty? When we were able to soar among the nations, there were mighty men of God that spoke for God. And they were the leaders of this nation. Men will never live free as citizens if they're not free first spiritually. A nation will not thrive if it's not seeking the spiritual liberation that frees us from the rage and ravages of sin and its destruction. We're tragically abandoning the very foundation that is required for men to live free. Freedom is attributed by a government, attributed to being from a government. But the foundation of freedom is submission to the fear of God's power and every person's submission to God's lordship. Only Jesus, only Jesus can provide the freedom we so desperately need. The freedom of Jesus isn't political, it's personal. Whoever Jesus touched was changed in a remarkable way. Simon met Jesus, and boy, was he a flim-flam. He would go one side or the other till he met Jesus, and Peter got a new name with Jesus. He today, you're Petros, Rocky. The disciples laughed. Boy, Jesus, you don't know much. He said, watch this. And the closer Rocky got to Jesus, the more he became stalwart as a man of God. Whoever Jesus touched, he was different. The sons of thunder became the men who wrote about the love and the grace of Jesus. The prodigals, when they heard his name, started leaving their pig pens and wanting to come back home to righteousness. Saul, who was a terrorist, delighted like ISIS to kill Christians, and he was notorious. He was good at what he did, and he loved to see them suffer and die until he met the one who was the Lord of glory. In a blinding light on the road to Damascus, Jesus didn't salvage him. He saved him from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And that mighty terrorist became a terror in the face of Satan as he snatched from hell soul after soul after soul that come to his Jesus who changed him. The Bible says the adulteress who was sure to die, 
She didn't begin to say, I, I'd like an attorney, please. I feel like this charge is unjust. They caught her in the act. Jesus was a rabbi. Rabbis were notorious for saying, you know the law, take care of it. Don't trouble me. Not Jesus. After he said to the men, you who have no sin, throw the first stone. He agreed with the law. She ought to die. I'm just looking for the righteous man, righteous enough that wouldn't be second in line. And they all left. And when she met Jesus, she heard him say, woman, go your way and do not leave this out. Go your way because I know you have a tendency to adultery and we're going to accept you and affirm you just like you are. That's American paganism. Jesus said, go your way and sin in that no more. That's what sets Jesus apart. When he can, he's the only one who can take failure and remove guilt. His life, he takes our worst sinful deeds and gives us a vibrant faith. When he transforms us, he is truly soul-shaking and life-changing. One who comes to know Jesus will forever live differently. That person will make changes as God works in and through them. His freedom means we can grow. Grow to be all we ought to be and not all we sure wish I could do that be. Let me ask you who's truly free. We oh, have all been around a piano keyboard when a little child gets up there and just starts banging and banging. And if they're your grandchild, you say, that's cute. Now you know better. But you listen and think that's cute. But you don't want a two-hour concert of that. Who is truly free? people who spent years in practice and they sit down at a keyboard and when they play you can't get enough and say do it please play that again oh that's so beautiful who's truly free the kid who can tear up a keyboard by smashing it those students we see demonstrating that say I can tear something down I'm free what a noble calling who's truly free who is it that came to kill steal and destroy not Jesus who's truly free the man who in Jesus is responsible enough to grow and mature and develop all those gifts God gave you to be making a difference in your family and in your church and in your community and at your work and in your recreation and in the schools because a strong home builds a strong church and a strong church strengthens a community and a strong community builds a strong city and a strong city helps a strong state and a strong state builds a strong nation and a strong nation touches the whole world. Where does it begin? One man who said before God, I will be responsible to do my duty to be all I can be in Jesus Christ. When we are free in Christ, we always move closer to him. We live in a generation day says, well, I, I, I want to see how, how far can I get over here? Now, I still want to go to heaven, but I don't want all that church. How, how far can I be over here and still go to heaven, preacher? I, I don't think this is so bad. Can I, can I, can I, be, can I go this way? Can I go just a little bit further? Am I still in if I do this? What other relationship in the world do you try to move as far away from as you can if you're truly in love? If you really love your mate, do you say, do I have to see you again today? If so, come to the altar at the invitation. If you really love to eat, do you say, I'm going to have to eat three times today? Oh, Huh? You love a concert? I, I, when, I, when, when I grow up, I want to be a musician. Because y'all sit at the front row of concerts. And you come early. Preachers, you get as far back as you can. And you wander in late. 
No other relationship in the world that we say, I love you, but I sure don't want to get too close to you. I, I, I sure want to go to heaven, but I don't want to live for you here. I, I hope someday to be a sweet by and by, but not, not in the here and now. What a mockery. What a mockery. What a mockery. Listen, when you really love somebody, you want to be with them. You accept that Jesus Christ has set you free. And you want to be in him. You abide in Christ, not pursuing your personal lust, living without boundaries, a living relationship of being changed by Him. To live in Christ, I have to die to myself. I have to die to my sinfulness and my rebellion and my selfishness. You understand that in every Christian's life there's a cross. A cross that's in my sight. A cross that is in my sight before there is a cross in my soul is a mandatory commandment. There has to be a cross that must be mine for me to ever be his. There's a cross that's ever before me for me to live free before him. And to the cross, I cling in death because that's the only hope I ever have of eternal life. It's Thomas Jefferson who said, The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. So it is with martyrs. Today, there are people that are dying in their faith while we wonder, what are we going to have for lunch? Today, there are people that fearful go to church wondering, are, are we going to be bombed today while we're in here? Not all the world gets to live like this. Many have died in the war spiritually because freedom is never free. This week, I heard an interview of Chris Kyle. You remember him, the American sniper? Shortly before he died, this young man who was born in Odessa, Texas in 1974, a son of a Baptist, a son of a deacon. Isn't that amazing? Son of a deacon. Grew up on a ranch. He joined the military in 1999. Became a SEAL and went overseas four times to Iraq in 10 years. Shortly before he died, he was at the Fellowship Church in, in Las Colinas with Ed Young, Jr., and the pastor there, Ed Young Jr., asked him a question. Chris, how, how do you deal with fear? How did you deal with fear? Chris said, over time, I guess you finally just get hardened to it. You accept death. You're there for a reason, he said. You know what the possible outcomes could be, and you're willing to give your life. Every vet, when he goes overseas, listen to this. Every vet, when he goes overseas, writes out a blank check to the country. He's really saying, here's my commitment up to the value of my life. What does a person do to gain the freedom, true freedom in Christ? We too must come to the point of enlisting and giving full surrender if we truly hope to be free in Him. We come before the Lord Jesus. We abdicate our lives and dedicate ourselves at the altar in the foot of the cross. We make this confession, Lord Jesus, Here's the blank check of my life. I give it to you. I've come to realize that I deserve death for my sin. And I accept your judgment as true. I'm here on assignment deployed by you for a reason. I know full well the outcomes. If I'm faithful, one day I'll hear you say well done when I come home. If I'm faithless then the worst torments are before me because I've rejected the king who sent me. This is my commandment, uh, my commitment. I'm willing to give my life, Lord Jesus, in your service, fully committed to you. 
here is my blank check up to the value of my life. You've given me everything, including giving me your life, giving your life freely for me to have life abundant. Today, I give you my life without holding anything back. I surrender fully, Lord Jesus, to the service of the King of the Kingdom. I gladly do so with all my heart and all my mind and all my soul. And I yield my strength to the power of God that's willing to work mightily in me now and forevermore. It was Julia Ward Howe who, visiting the Union troops in December of 1861, saw them camp there. And she was challenged to write a song, uh, the lyrics for a melody. There was an old song called Ode to Anacreon. Not a very good song. The melody still hard to sing, but she wrote new lyrics as she could not get off of her mind seeing those Union troops camped in 1861. We so often sing that. It's called the Battle Hymn of the Republic, but their verses, like most hymns, we don't always sing. Today I close by sharing you the verses of what it means to be free and what the call of freedom requires. I've seen, uh, these are the verses of Battle Hymn you perhaps have not sung or read. I've read a fiery gospel, she wrote, written burnished rows of steel. As you deal with my condemners, those who are opposing to God, those who are opposition to God, as you deal with my contemners, so with you my grace shall deal. Let the hero born of woman crush the serpent with his heel, since God is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. In the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea. With a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me as he died to make men holy. Let us live to make men free. His truth is marching on. Listen to this. He is coming like the glory of the morning on the wave. He is wisdom to the mighty. He's honor to the brave. And so the world shall be his footstool and the son of wrong his slave. Our God is marching on. He is, you know. And so this morning, with every ounce of my fiber, I say thank God for his mercy that saved me from sin. Thank God for his mercy that sent his Holy Spirit to indwell me. Thank God for his mercy that set my feet on a path of righteousness. Thank God for his power that indwells my very soul. Thank God for writing my name in the Lamb's book of life. Thank God that Jesus Christ who ascended is soon coming again. And thank God that when he comes, those who are in his nation, the kingdom of heaven, shall abide with him forever. And may God in his mercy bless this nation as long as she exists to be one. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. God help us. Lord God Almighty, how can we possibly say thanks with our lips when the cost of freedom has cost so much with lives? We are twice blessed once by the blood of Jesus who set us free from sin and once by the blood of patriots who have allowed us to live free as a nation. I believe there are people in this room that say, Brother Nick, I'm not free. 
I don't know Jesus. I know about him. I do not have a personal relationship with him. And though he died for me, I have never given my life to live for him. I've never been truly at peace that I've been forgiven of my sins. I don't know what it is to wake up in the morning joyous because Jesus is my Lord. If that's you, I beg you today, do not even wait till I stop praying. I ask you right now to step out from where you are and make your way to the altar. Pastors, as you're in the room, make your way to the altar. You say, Brother Nick, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I don't know Jesus for certain. I'm not sure my life is free in his life. Then I beg you, step out from where you are and do a bold thing. If a man can fight a battle for you on earth, surely you can walk an aisle for Jesus. And say today, I give my life to him. Will you do that? I believe there are folks in the room that say, I need to join this church. Would you do that? I believe there are folks that say, I need to be baptized. Why would you say no to the King of glory? Why in the world would you do that? I beg you today to come. But I believe there's some of us that ought to get on our face and beg God to forgive us for complacency, not just as American citizenry, but as citizens of the kingdom of God. We rejoice in patriots who paid with their lives. How much more should we rejoice when the Son of God left heaven to buy the likes of us with his blood? Surely today, on this Memorial Day, the one we remember best and most is Jesus Christ, Son of God, who did die, who was buried, But praise God rose again and is coming again soon. Will you today bend your knee before God and call on him to help us to be mighty men and women in this generation to be salt and light in this nation that so desperately needs a touch of the master's hand. God, move among us. Let your spirit have freedom and help us to be submitted under the mighty hand of God. In Jesus' name, 